Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Make him an offer, Kill us if you got the chance. I can handle things. I'm smart. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Hello and welcome back to the Quadfecta. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And in today's Quadfecta, we're discussing Japanese master director Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> Mitch, this is my favorite director of all time. That's kind of great. It is kind of great. I, w- I guess I could give a little bit of the history of that. You know, there was some influence that he had on me early on in becoming interested in film. And this would be before I actually saw a Kurosawa film. Um, I remember it being mentioned by Diane Chambers on an episode of Cheers one time. I just really stuck in my head <laughs> for some reason. She, called, she she made sure the boys knew that Magnificent Seven was a remake of Seven Samurai. Oh, I remember it. that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And um, but then the next time, you know, that stuck to me for uh, stuck in my mind for some reason. And then the next time was the Oscars. I believe it was 1988 when he received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Oscars. I'm watching it with my mom. And they showed the, the montage, the, the retrospective of his career. And it was mind-blowing to me. Like, just the clips really stuck out to me, especially um, the arrow through the neck at the end of Throne of Blood. That one really stuck out. And I remember my mom going, oh, that's terrible. Something like that. And I was like, no, that's really cool. And so I was immediately like, Kurosawa's interesting to me. Now he wasn't available for me to rent uh, at the, my local video video store yet. But then later, about I think it was about 1998, a guy said, hey, you should really see Yojimbo. You know that Fistful of Dollars is a remake of Yojimbo and so forth. And I walked right down the street from where we were and rented Yojimbo at Blockbuster. And Yojimbo is my favorite movie of all time. I've watched it many, many times and... From there, I just took off. Is it still your favorite movie? It's absolutely my favorite movie. There's no movie. There's something about Yojimbo that gets me so excited. Just like even hearing that little cue, the music cue right at the beginning and kind of imagining the Toho logo at the beginning. I don't know why I immediately am like, I want to watch that movie right now. Every single time I think of it. So yeah, Yojimbo is my favorite movie for sure. I never get tired of it. And it's so, to me, it's so deep. It's got so many great performances this great cinematography it's hilarious especially if you see it in a theater with a crowd i didn't even realize how funny it was until i saw it at the tivoli with a packed house and i went wait i forgot you know it's funny when you're watching it but boy it's never as funny as when you watch it with a with a couple hundred people yeah yeah it's the same with sanjuro which was the first one i saw i saw a double bill of sanjuro and throne of blood at the new art theater in los angeles and that would have been uh my when i was 19 and I had been reading about Kurosawa for the past few years, but there was no way to see those movies in Hutchinson, Kansas. And right. so it was really exciting to finally uh, be able to go see those movies and to see them in a movie theater. Um, and that was 
video home video had started, but uh, it, I don't I didn't have access even when I had moved to California to see those things on video. So it was great to see him in a theater with an audience because there is so much comedy. I mean, it really does play beautifully, especially in in his in Hidden Fortress, Yojimbo, Senjuro. They're all really funny. Throne of Blood, not so much, but no. but but still, the spectacle of it is extraordinary. Right. Well, um, you mentioned the first movie we're going to talk about. If we're going to talk about Kurosawa movies, maybe we should just move into our first quadfecta choice. And that's The Hidden Fortress, which I had read about because Lucas was pretty honest about saying that it was the inspiration for Star Wars. And that's probably, uh, in many ways, now the gateway drug uh, for Kurosawa, for fans, because they have that Star Wars connection. They they probably hold Star Wars in a higher esteem than Fistful of Dollars. They probably, most young people haven't even seen a Fistful of Dollars. I hate to sound old, but right. it's quite possible. But they've seen Star Wars. So when you hear that it's a remake, or it was influenced or inspired by uh, Hidden Fortress, it certainly makes you want to, to watch that film. Yeah, there's somewhere along the line in that little mini history of my knowledge of Kurosawa where I heard that as well. Of course, I was very much a Star Wars fan. Somewhere along the lines, I'd seen a documentary or some kind of uh, comparison with between C-3PO and R2-D2 and R2 peasant uh, grave digger, soldier, whatever you want to call them, guys that we get that introduce this film, The Hidden Fortress. And this was Kurosawa's first foray into widescreen. And it's amazing. It is just amazing. When you watch his films, I feel like... Um, Kurosawa and and David Lean and Sergio Leone, all who kind of had this really, really passionate love affair with widescreen in the early 60s, um, they were all, those, those three were just, and they made these amazing transitions. I mean, Leone sort of started with, yeah. I mean, I don't remember, was Sodom and Gomorrah, he had worked as a director on that, I think, right before Fistful of Dollars. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether I've that never was never seen scope or that not. one, but if it was, if it wasn't scope, I mean, if if that was one of what was that his first film as a director? Is that what you're saying? I'm not familiar with that film. Yeah, yeah, he was a he was a co-director on sure. that, and there was another Peplum I think he'd worked on. And I have no idea whether those would have been in in the um, you know cheap ass scope ripoffs that they were using. Right. Te- Technoscope being the one that uh, Leone used, but. All three of these directors in the early 60s moved from the square frame to the widescreen format, and they're extraordinary, all three of them. Yeah, I think we, you know, well, Kurosawa and Lean both had made many, many films in the old Academy ratio. And you and I discussed this the other day, just threw out the question. So the audi- I think the audience would probably love to think about this question, too. Which one of the two of them made the, big, the best transition, the Kurosawa into... Hidden Fortress, or Lean Into Bridge Over the River Kwai. That's a, boy, that's a neck and neck race right there. Both yeah, of them using that format to its fullest capacity. I'm, you know, I'm going to lean towards Kurosawa myself. The compositions in this film are just amazing. And the way the storytelling, he was so adept at, at using the format as a storytelling tool, not just a vista, you know, not, not just creating vistas for us to look at, which he did that too, but how many ways he he used it to, I don't to not necessarily use editing to tell the story as much. So we could move the camera from one place to another and you have that all that real estate on the screen where you could reveal things without cutting. Uh, and that became a, definitely a, a, a trademark of Kurosawa going forward is uh, you, moving the camera for effect as opposed to cutting for effect. He is 
such an invisible stylist, I think. I think that when you watch his movies casually, if there's such a thing as that, you maybe don't even notice how precise he is because it's something about his ability to move not just the camera but the people within the frame it's it's just so easy because i look at somebody like john ford who you know clearly of course i would love john ford he started dressing like him you know wearing a golf shirt and a sunglasses sunglasses and a fishing cap but there's always something for me anyway about john ford's films that feel very very composed always very composed and i can't think of a john ford movie that feels effortless to me and there's something about all of kurosawa's films that just feels effortless yeah i mean i think occasionally he likes to he liked to flourish a bit so you say invisible stylist he could oh, be that you're right there's punctuations that yeah. are totally um like whoa that move is really sweet you know it's but but yeah I mean, so one of one uh, you know talking about editing, one of the things he's known for a trademark. Another thing that Lucas uh, borrowed from him is the wipe, um, copious wipes, you know, in his editing. And I think, to a certain extent, I think he's accentuating things, punctuating things with those wipes, and it's a stylistic choice. Now, I think it was a little bit more common in Japanese cinema in general, um, and you see it in American westerns occasionally and so forth. But boy, Kurosawa loved them. I do too. I gotta admit, I do too. I gotta admit, I write them into screenplays. <laughs> There's and certain times you... where I want there to be this momentum from one scene to the other that that's a visual momentum of the cut, as opposed to a dissolve or something where there's a time lapse or something you're going for. You want here's a moment, and I want you to feel the reaction to the moment into the next scene. I'll write wipe to, and I think that Kurosawa uses that. That's partially. I mean, obviously he's very influential on me there. And I think he uses it to great effect, especially in an action adventure film like Hidden Fortress, where it's like, let's keep this thing moving. Well, and Lucas uses it in Star Wars. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, like I said, yeah, he borrowed that too. And it's, it's everybody uses it. Now you have to use it in Star Wars, right? People even in this day and age with this new Disney era of Star Wars, people will even complain if there's not wipes. <laughs> like, well, he barely used a wipe in the whole movie. I saw that about The Last Jedi, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, there were like I think in the Last Jedi there's a uh, a clock wipe at one point. Uh, where yeah, you, yeah. So you know wipes. I don't know. Well, there's like funny. a wipe iris in Star Wars too, isn't there? It's sort of there's iris ends and things. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. I, I so Hidden Fortress for those who haven't seen it, um, like Star Wars, opens up with a pair of um, not droids, but a pair of peasant ne'er do wells uh, who are um, sort of scheming and stumbling and bumbling their way uh, through divided territories there's clans feuding uh it's it's the uh, 16th century uh, it's before the major unification by the shoguns and so there are, there's two clans that are at war with each other uh, and like star wars eventually um they meet a uh, an adventurer uh who's a general um not dressed like a general but who is in fact a general and he is searching for a princess so yeah. in a way, we don't really have, we have Luke Skywalker and Han Solo kind of smashed up into one character in a way, I guess. Right. And there's a blockade that must be crossed, which, you know, you kind of have that idea. The, the ship at the the first ship you see in Star Wars is known as a blockade runner. I think that idea is supposed to be there as well. Uh, space is kind of hard to have a, a legitimate blockade, but there's so many similar ideas to the plot of, uh, of 
Hidden Fortress in Star Wars. Yeah, that's it's just right on the surface. And there's multiple visual. Even the the last shot is a visual. You know, Lucas uses multiple times a version of that in the film, his films as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the general is played by uh, by Mifune, and um, I just like to comment on Toshiro Mifune's legs. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the that, his leggiest performance. Is in, that guy is in such amazing shape, and his ability, the way he moves, is just fantastic. Mifune is my favorite actor as well. I mean, I'm just such a fan of this collaboration. My absolute favorite film collaboration is uh, between director and, and actor of all time. And he is, he's just such an incredible physical specimen, the way he physically commands the screen in any kind of, in any shot. You could have a very wide shot, like take for instance in the duel, um, the duel scene here in Hidden Fortress where he meets up with a, a comrade, a former comrade, they have a great respect for each other so they decide to duel each other. We cut to this very wide high angle shot of many, many men surrounding Mifune, and he's commanding the entire shot from that distance, the entire time, physically commanding it in every way, though he's surrounded by many other larger men than him, uh, all armed, all in armor, and yet him in his peasant's, peasant clothes commands the screen. And then you cut to any close-up of him, and he's just, it, it's going to knock you flat. He's just got the best face in the history of cinema, in my opinion, Best physical actor in the history of cinema, in my opinion. I just, I don't know, he's my favorite movie star. It's a great dueling scene because it's a duel with spears, and it's not what you would expect, and it's really exciting and really engaging. Now, is that, you think that that choice is because of the widescreen? I mean, that's one of the things Stephen Prince brings up. Stephen Prince, we should mention him. Is he the world's foremost Kurosawa expert? Maybe I don't know. I I, I would not go that far to say. I don't know about that he, either. But he, he sure does know expert. a thing or two, and he I'll seems to be yes. the choice, yes. uh, the go-to choice. No, he, he does he, the Criterion commentary. Yeah, and he brings up he brings that up. That is very traditional, obviously, to have sword duels in these films. Now, before this, Seven Samurai, for instance, we've got the tighter frame, so the sword being the closer, you know, uh, proximity instrument makes sense for that. Now, if you're going widescreen, a guy like Kurosawa, who's now playing with a new format, might think, ooh, how can we do something different with the format in this particular moment? Let's do spears. There's probably no reason to, for them to duel with spears here. It's kind of a strange tool well, to be different. using in this moment. It's different. That's a good, it's a new idea, but it's a new idea, I think, born from the fact that he's looking for every way he can to, um, to get the most out of this new widescreen format. What I think is interesting, having recently watched Seven Samurai, is even though that is shot in Academy ratio, I think about that movie and I always imagine it in widescreen because yeah. he still manages to use the horizontal you know, compositions in that movie to create space. And so I think about the duels, the sword duel, and of course the famous scene where the guy falls dead in slow motion. And I always think of that in widescreen, but yeah. of course it isn't. It's square. Well, partially, yeah. Like you said, he uses the horizontal a lot with a with lot of tracking shots, a lot of amazing tracking shots. Specifically, I always think about that moment that it's sort of a moment, there's a calm before the storm sequence in Seven Samurai where they're training the peasants for the eventual raid that's going to come. And someone sounds the alarm and we get seven individual shots cut in of, of each samurai sprinting back to the village reeds in the foreground and 
he's tracking with them as they sprint and the movement and everything. And, and that just is going to stretch your imagination. If you're remembering those the moments like that, it's going to stretch your imagination wide. I mean, because it, it's such the movement right, left, right to left. Um, it does, like you said, take advantage of the horizontal in such a way that you just see the scope of it all. There's a really amazing kind of horizontal composition in Hidden Fortress. And there's a moment when our, our two ne'er-do-wells are um, sitting on one side of the frame and, and Princess uh, Yuki is asleep uh, on the other side of the frame and they're looking at her and it's clearly they're, gonna, they're thinking about which one of us is going to get to rape her and they, they actually draw straws to see who's going to go away. But what's really weird and interesting about that scene is before any of that happens, you totally know in a single frame composition the way that their positions, the way she's positioned, the way they're looking at her, without any close-ups, without any cuts, you know exactly what's going on and what exactly is, yeah. is on their minds. And it's, it's a sort of genius bit of filmmaking because it suddenly makes you feel almost like, no way, I can't, I, I think I know what's going on, but it can't be, and, and then, of course, it is. Right. Um, and, then it's, and then it's interrupted with this extraordinary sort of rescue by her lady-in-waiting, I guess we can call her that at this point, with a really big rock. Right. And it's, it's, it's really an, an amazing movie. That sounds super dark. Um, he manages to capture her humanity and the foolishness of these two guys. I mean, it has that typical Kurosawa distance, not like Stanley Kubrick distance, but just this observational quality where he's very tuned in to the personalities of all of the characters that he's um, representing. And yeah. I guess, you know, thematically it fits for his, for his sort of overall body of work in that it's, there's fate at work, there's sort of existential choices, there's pressure from, from institutions and establishment and culture that's be, that, that the characters are coming up against, mm -hmm. which I think is, is kind of one big theme in a lot of Kurosawa's movies. He's kind of a radical filmmaker in that sense. He seems to be on one hand, very proud of his culture and the fact that he comes from a samurai family and at the same time he's super critical of institutions and structures and maybe that's what made him so popular with western audiences i mean i don't think the, the japanese didn't think nearly as much of kurosawa as as western audiences thought of him right yeah you mentioned the darkness of hidden fortress there's darkness under the surface of this somewhat formulaic samurai adventure film and and the idea behind this film was supposed to be that well he got to make Rashomon he got to make Akiru Toho gave him the money to make these very small relatively small even though Rashomon turned out to be a big deal um, these more personal films and this this was supposed to be kind of a gift to Toho like okay I'm gonna make a success for you guys here here comes a big you know we're gonna make a big sweeping adventure again and it's gonna be a big success for you guys to justify some of the budgets you've given me and yet you know, I guess the story goes that him and his his crew of screenwriters that he liked to use, um, same crew as Seven Samurai, went up to the mountains, got drunk, and just kept writing back and forth and came up with this big adventure story. But they sure do come up with some some dark thematic things that are under the surface there. This Civil War is no joke. I mean, it's in the background of a lot of it, you're seeing horrible travail. And um, I mean, these, these uh, peasant guys at the beginning are... are 
so upset complaining so dirty from burying corpse after corpse you know it's like this civil war is no joke and yet and like you mentioned you get this uh get these the threat of rape as part of the story um it's not it's not it's a somewhat formulaic film and it might be on the surface to some and kind of shallow but it's got some darkness underneath and um yeah, I think that it gets better and better every time I see it, and it gets richer and deeper every time yeah. I see it. So I think that it's maybe um, deceptive in that way, that it's, it seems to be just this big kind of adventure film, and there's really a lot more at work in it. And, of course, the filmmaking is superb. Impeccable. All right, well, let's, let's move on to another movie. I'd say another dark, I'd say call this one a dark comedy. Another subversive film, we'll get into the reasons why. My favorite movie, Yojimbo. So, where to start with Yojimbo? Can I start with lenses? You can. Please do, because lenses are definitely a big story with Kurosawa, the lenses he preferred to use. Go ahead. You know more about that stuff than me, so go ahead. Well, I just, Yojimbo is an extraordinary movie, um, especially if you think about it in terms of the ripoff, Fistful of Dollars, which, you know, both widescreen movies, both um, made within a, you know, Fistful of Dollars was made pretty quickly after Yojimbo. They jumped on that thing fast. Um, and so you've got these two widescreen films, and yet in one case with Leone, it's all really wide, short lenses. And so right. you get this depth of field, and you get you get distortion on the edges. Kurosawa, and on the other hand, shoots these amazing widescreen compositions, and he's doing them with long lenses. Wow. And so it's flattening the 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 image. Um, the focus pulling is completely insane. The fact that every time somebody is moving towards the camera, they got to be pulling focus and it's always sharp and always vivid. And, and, and again, back to this idea of deceptive effortless, you don't think about that stuff until somebody says, you know, what about the lenses in, in your Jimbo? It's like, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. No. But now when I watch it, I am just absolutely in awe of how he creates these shapes and these spaces using that um, those longer lenses and also managing to have a a lot of depth of field. Like he's pouring a ton of light onto there to 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 make everything you know visible to us, even though the lenses are distorting the shapes and the sizes. Well, I mean, I think the best example of what you're talking about would be you have the central location, which is the restaurant. Okay, so the first place he goes, the first the first place our main character even speaks a word, I believe, is inside this restaurant with his with this restaurateur, if you call him innkeeper, if you will. And we get this is the central location of the movie. It sits in the middle of town, I guess. I assume it's in the middle of town. I've never really thought about the geography totally, but and on each side you can slide open windows and doors and look around and observe the town. And you're getting, so you're getting them in the foreground, they're, you're getting the window, and then you're getting things happening across the street sometimes in another building, and it's all in focus, and it's all, the texture is there because of the way he composes the shot and sets it up. It's not about, I mean, like you said, the lens is like kind of flattening, but he's having to pour light, he's having to have all this uh, yeah. real estate from the lens to, God, 50, 60 feet away, lit in a way that we can see everything that's going on. 
Uh, specifically, there's the when the in, inspector comes to town and they're spiked this tea and and our uh, Sanjiro and our innkeeper are watching them and it's sort of this they let this whole comedy scene play out for them to to enjoy together. And man, every single all, there's so much action going on, so many different places and that, and he just lets it play out. And it's very textured and just expertly done. This is one of the things that gets me so excited about this movie. I love the observational camera inside of that restaurant. That's one of the things I think about all the time is how great of a location that is for giving us a vantage point for the for the town and to share the vantage point of the, those two characters. So basically the plot of Yojimbo, uh, which I think is, I think Kurosawa cops to the fact that he basically stole it from Red Harvest, the mm-hmm. Dashiell Hammett book, is a uh, stranger comes into town there's two uh, warring factions taking advantage of of the townspeople and in in a intense rivalry between the two of them and he manages to um offer his services to one side to the other side and ultimately play everybody off of each other uh so that plot is the plot of fistful of dollars it's the plot of last man standing it's the plot of lots of other unofficial ripoffs and it all kind of goes back to to red harvest and and to use a plot like this with a samurai character is a lot of people think this is kind of the the the, the death blow to traditional Jedi Geki uh, Shambara filmmaking, which was the old the good old fashioned Japanese period peace drama about samurais clashing swords. Typically, now Kurosawa was chipping away at this over the years, but typically done in a very respectful tone. Like it was supposed to be, these were very honorable people. Usually, the stories were about honor or family. And Kurosawa, he messes with it, obviously, quite a bit with Seven Samurai, as all the different samurai represent different, I don't know, levels of class among the samurai, going all the way down to a kid who's just pretending to be a samurai, who happens to be played by Jashiro Mifune. Here, he's got a flat-out, like, opportunistic, I guess you'd say lacking honor, at least in the first act, first half of the film, pretty much completely lacking honor samurai, who's just out to play both sides against each other and make a quick buck. And this was kind of controversial for people uh, uh, who still had that respect. And like you said, Kurosawa comes from a samurai family. So it's interesting for him to be the one to kind of tear this down. But it never looked back. If you think about your sword sword play films in Japan going forward after Yojimbo, they're, not, they're really not the same anymore. Yeah, the 60s are all about the casting a critical eye on the, the, the Bushido code and the idea of the samurai the idea of the, the 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 value and glory of the shogunate, um, all that stuff gets questioned in in a way that the U, that in the United States the Western starts to be questioned really seriously in the '60s and ultimately deconstructed by the time you get to the Wild Bunch in in '69. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting about this Sanjuro character that Mafune plays and the man with no name in the Clint Eastwood movies and James Bond, uh, as as portrayed by Sean Connery in the first two or three James Bond films, all of these movies are these strangely um, rebellious her- anti-heroes, you know, or right. or if they're heroes, they're heroes that um, have aspects of them that we don't n- normally associate with the hero. You know, one is a license to kill. The other one is just a, a cold-blooded killing machine. And in the case of, of Mafune, he's a trickster, a schemer. Um, he's driven by self-interest. And there's none of the um, the code that he functions by is not a prescribed code, but it is a code of survival and um, in a way kind of uh, anarchy. 
but it keeps him open. Being an individualistic code, he can also amend that code and act as a human if he feels so inclined, which he does. Right. In this right. film, he's right. not. It's not like he's he's sworn to a certain duty that doesn't allow him to help someone in need. You know, uh, not necessarily that those things are mutually uh, separate, but you know, in a in a certain certain story where, say, he worked for a specific clan. If he actually worked for this clan, he wouldn't go rescue a woman <laughs> who was, you know, part, part of the overall plot. Um, that wouldn't be part of his duties. But because he has an individualistic duty, he can make that decision, even though he wants to pretend like he's still a rough, tough, bad guy. Well, he's not going to see a little boy and a husband, even though the husband makes him sick, he says. He's not going to see them shamed and, and them in mourning over the loss of the mother without taking some action. So this is where we get more i think we get more a richer character than we get from the man with no name even though you know obviously this it's a tough one with that one because it's a remake so the fistful of dollars is a remake and you get a lot of the similar things happening but i never feel like it's the same character like you said no a a killing machine it it feels much more that way with totally it's a different it's a different archetype it's a different character but i'm Mm -hmm. just saying all three of these guys sort of come out at around the same time and they all have these anarchic qualities the thing that's great about yojimbo is that the weapon of choice by the bad guy is a gun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the gun was in Japan was was something that was, you know, p- put aside. I mean, the sword became and remained the, the major weapon because it was an honorable weapon. Right. And so to have the most dishonorable character in the movie be the guy who pulls a gun out mm-hmm. seems to me really kind of perfect. Yeah, it's, it's, he's an interesting character because you cut... Right when you think that our guy, I have so much confidence in Sanjuro. Like, I think, well, he's got everybody snowed here. And he's so confident, and you know that he's he's ahead of everyone one step. Boy, when the, this dude shows up with a gun, though, that guy really does feel like he could be a competition. So it's a great it's a great moment, because up to that point, you're enjoying his trickster, tricksterish character. But he's really not being challenged in any way up until this guy shows up. Not only with the gun, but he immediately gives off an error that he's a little bit more dangerous, maybe a little crazy, maybe, but definitely smarter than a lot of the people you've seen before, too. On top of that, he's got a firearm. So, boy, the stakes raise really quick right there when you see that first see that guy come to town. You know, the other thing about Yojimbo, uh, and, and, to, and to a lesser degree, um, Fistful of Dollars and, and Dr. No, uh, is the fact that, that the music is... Um, kind of anachronistic now dr no obviously is not a, a, a period film but um the kind of scoring with the james bond theme it you know it swings in a way that that stuff hadn't that's not the kind of mu- music you're used to in action films up to that right. point leone's obviously gets marconi to do his score which has anachronistic instrumentation in it and the score for yojimbo is kind of a jazz score it is and it's specifically i guess the intention of it was to play quote-unquote, the wrong instruments all through the movie. It's, again, to subvert this traditional Jedi Geki, like, honorable portrayal of the samurai. So usually you would get sweeping, kind of sweeping strings or something, underscoring all the stuff. If you think back to the samurai trilogy where uh, the historical epics that Mifune Mifune played in, you know, it's done very respectful towards this character. Where this character, well, obviously you get the stubble, you get the scratching, the shoulder shrugging, He's a he's got the samurai clothes on, but they're not all that clean. And then you get this music underneath, and it's telling you straight up, this guy is not the samurai you're used to seeing. Let's forget about all that. Let's have fun with this. 
the music's so comedic in so many places as well. The jazz, the jazz definitely plays into it. Uh, you could definitely hear those jazz riffs here and there throughout the score. Well, should we move on to uh, another film? Yeah, we can move on to uh, The Bad Sleep Well. So The Bad Sleep Well, uh, 1960, came in between Hidden Fortress and Yojimbo? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Hidden Fortress and The Bad Sleep Well, he makes a move into uh, a, a, a contemporary piece about Japanese business culture. Um, interestingly, too, like I said before, he made the, uh, the Hidden Fortress for Toho. Sort of like, hey, let's make some money here. Let's have a big crowd pleaser. And then on this movie, they said, you know, we've been giving you a lot of money. Can you can you uh, found your own production company and kind of start taking some of this financial burden on? So this is actually the first Kurosawa production. This is for uh, the first movie he ever produced through his own company, which I find interesting and sort of uh, relevant to the fact that he's making this movie about people moving money around, bidding wars, things, you know, anyway, he had, a, I guess, maybe an interesting uh, uh, perspective on business culture at that particular moment as well, uh, as he was going into being more of a, as more of a businessman himself than just an artist. So this is a pretty significant change of pace for him, yeah? Yeah, for sure. Um, this is, well, first of all, so we've, we've established he, he started shooting in widescreen, so this is going to be his first contemporary set film uh, in widescreen, and I think he does... A lot with that too, right? Uh, can we call it a film noir? Is that it's pretty a crime picture? Where, where, what do we? Where do we put the bad sleep well, high and low, and stray dog? We, we, the, the crime, the crime trilogy. What do we call that? Yeah, I mean, even Drunken Angel. Um, Drunken Angel is a noir. I always consider it a Japanese noir. Um, stray dog as well. To be honest, uh, this one for sure. I think it's a pretty sprawling noir. Typically, I, I typically think of film noir as being a little bit more contained than this. And maybe, um, I don't know, though, it, it really does kind of hit all those buttons, doesn't it? Um, certainly, there's a, there's a certain amount of hopelessness to it. And, and, and oftentimes, I'll tell people, you know, I use examples like Chinatown and The Killing to explain what kind of hits a button for me as far as how a movie ends being a noir. Like, Defining it as noir by the ending, this one definitely does to me. It's got a little bit of a Chinatown feel to it to me, or the killing where it's, um, well, all this stuff happened and maybe it should have made a difference, but guess what? It didn't, right? Yeah, that's probably true. It's about a um, an upwardly mobile, apparently, uh, businessman who marries uh, the boss's daughter in this uh, sort of corrupt corporation right. for, uh, for us only then to discover that he has uh, vengeance on his mind and he's actually going to um, destroy her father and the and the company from within so there's a, a little bit of point blank there in, in the sense of like one man well, one man wrecking crew in a way one of the interesting things about point blank is that it seems as though he doesn't really have that much of a beef 
you know, it's what a, a piddling amount of money, supposedly. Yeah, I just want my money. Where yeah. this one is, you killed my father, so it's a little bit heavier. You're right. You're right. It's definitely revenge. It's a revenge movie. Sure. For sure. What's very Kurosawa about it to me is I think a lot of filmmakers would make this movie and maybe get into the details of the um, the uh, business intrigue. Like we might get a little bit more about what is this corruption that this these businessmen are guilty of. We get a little bit of it, but the movie certainly doesn't dwell on it. It's in Kur- as a Kurosawa trademark, he's always more interested in how it affects the people in the story. And I think specifically the fact that we find out that the protagonist of the film was so deeply hurt by this corruption, not just ripped off, but his father was murdered, um, so to speak, indirectly. The way businessmen in Japan apparently murder people is basically getting them to kill themselves. Um, it's that personal level, it's that human level that Kurosawa brings to his films that's, that's very distinct in this one. Where I, I'm not 100% sure what's going on in this movie as far as what's the, what is the business intrigue part of it. But I'm right there with him and I'm right there with the, all of the characters, even the ones that are somewhat treacherous or totally treacherous. I still kind of feel for him in a way once they get, in the, get really deep in that deep water. So is this kind of his Hamlet? Is it, that fair? It's pretty Hamlet, yeah, definitely. I mean, he obviously Kurosawa loves him some some Shakespeare. I mean, he's all the way up to the end of his career. He was adapting Shakespeare, but this definitely has the feel of Hamlet, right? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Um. So, like I was saying, the widescreen the, shooting the city the way he does, shooting these um, ruins that are around the city, the factory ruins, the volcanoes, and so on. You were mentioning to me that you were. It was just amazing the scope he's able to give this story by the way he shoots it. Yeah, the fact that um, at a certain point, you know, we're, we're on, on the edge of a volcano. And who would have expected that in a sort of urban corporate crime story? You know, right. he just manages to find these ways of creating this huge sense of scale uh, in what's really a small story. And sort of to mention... David Lean for a minute, you know, that was the thing that everybody went after David Lean about with Ryan's daughter was that somehow he had too small of a story and too big of a canvas to work on. Somehow uh, in The Bad Sleep Well, Kurosawa is able to expand the space in a way that mirrors the psychological situations of the characters and then bring it back down to a more intimate scale, always, though, working within that widescreen uh, format so there's always right. a sense of sweep to it but it never felt wrong to me you know I, it felt always really daring and and surprising you know it's it's i think it's a great film a really great film i do too i I'm, i love this movie i it was one of those blind buys on criterion years ago for me where it was never one a kurosawa film i'd even really heard talked about at all until criterion released it and I watched it, and then we watched it in my old movie club, and we were all in love with it. Like, it's surprisingly funny in parts, too. I mean, there's just bits of humor. Like, sort of, it's very dark humor, but sort of in the way these people react to their situations. Uh, just, I don't know, it hits, like, this dark, dark humor button inside of me. But thinking about you're th- thinking about the composition, you're talking about the, the scope of a volcano, and then there's these shots that always stick out to me, like... Um, the character who gets to witness his own funeral and these tight close-ups of his eyes just barely peeking up over the dashboard of the car as he watches these 
people, uh, the president of the company coming to his funeral. You know, he actually gets to see these people all stream out to pay homage to him, the people that were about about to sink him, you know, <laughs> before he got uh, pulled into this deeper plot. Um, I just think about how he, he's able to capture these personal moments visually so well. And you even feel for these guys, even though these guys are treacherous leches, you know. You still feel for these guys in a certain way. Because, like you said before about, I believe, back when we were talking about Hidden Fortress, he always seems to just understand his characters. He's got this real um, grasp of how to portray them and to portray them visually and not not really have to overdo the exposition. Uh, of course, there's that kabuki theater aspect of the acting sometimes that plays it up a little bit more but i still always feel um, the realism that he's able to capture with these guys well it does seem like the sort of cynicism that informs this movie gets carried over to yojimbo in both cases with mafune being the you know the fox in the hen house the guy right. who's who's managed to infiltrate and is smarter than everybody and two steps ahead of everybody so they're they're great companion pieces in a way you know on this viewing of it um, and, and with a little supplemental reading, I never really thought about this be, as being any kind of a statement about the state of Japan at the time. I just always kind of enjoyed it as this, you know, business intrigue uh, kind of crime film. But I noticed something that really stuck out to me this on this viewing, and that's how many times, how many times he mentions or has a character mention, or the way he shoots American cars throughout this film. Did you notice that? There's all this yeah. discussion about American cars and that real specific when the guy orders the car and he's very specific. It has to be a, the Cadillac. I forget which Cadillac, but it has to have the white interior with the black. And then there's multiple establishing shots of someone where you see Dodge real, real sharply on the back of the car. And I do think that there was this feeling at the time that maybe a guy like Kurosawa, who's a, somewhat of a traditionalist, a, subverting institutions and so forth through his films, but also warning Japan Hey, don't get too far. There's a good tradition in Japanese uh, business and in just Japanese society in general, which is honor. Like, are we forgetting this? And I think I think he's placing a little bit of the blame in the post-war, like kind of Americanized Japan here. That we're behaving a little bit too much like Americans nowadays. I think he's. I, I think that's absolutely true, and yeah. I think the fact that he did flirt with communism, you know, early early on in his career. Um, he he wasn't some avowed communist, but he definitely was interested in the in the idealism that was presented by it. You know the notions of of equality, and so I think that that really does kind of find its way in, especially when you think about the humiliation that the Japanese people went through in the wake of of the atomic bomb and the occupation by American forces and the really strict. Um, behavioral edicts that were placed upon things like Japanese film, like what they were allowed to make films about and what they couldn't make films about. So I think that there's a real healthy skepticism. Uh, he, he loved John Ford and, and he loved whiskey, uh, but he also was, I think, always suspicious of what the Americans were up to. Right. He, he was adamant about America's uh, apology, should, that America should apologize for the atomic bomb. He held a grudge about that. Um, you could see that in an earlier film as well. I, I live in fear, the Mifune role where he plays the old man that's paranoid about the, um, the atomic bomb test and thinks everyone needs to leave Japan before it's too late. Um, I think his, his flirtation with communism was partially because Japan was being used as a sort of block against communist insurgents, so-called. 
um, from from China and, and so forth. So I think it was a bit of a rebellious thing for him to flirt with communism. Uh, it certainly certainly doesn't show much in his later career that he would would have those feelings. But as a young man, a bit angry about how the war turned out, a bit angry about how the Americans were treating him, like you said, I think that's part of it. And I think this is, I mean, maybe this is the last little bit of that in him, this story. I, I, I do think there's a lot of rich material in here. It's some, some that I really just didn't notice before until this most recent viewing. It, uh, this movie took a big step up for me this last time I watched it. I enjoyed it before, but now I think it's a real masterpiece. Well, John, do you want to jump to another uh, arguably truly great film? Well, we did. We talked about three of them, so let's talk about another one. Um, how about we go to 1965 and talk about Redbeard? Okay, so obviously, for those of you keeping up, if you're familiar with the timeline of Kurosawa's career, we just jumped ahead, and now it doesn't make much sense, does it? What are you doing to me, John? I don't know. We we decided to do this. We decided to play. We've done this before. We played tricks with the chronology of these films. In this case, we're really playing a trick because we were right. We were right there to have that quadfecta, but now we're jumping ahead. So maybe we're going to talk about more than four films on this particular episode. I'm thinking we are. We are going to talk about four films, and we're going to talk about um, arguably two quadfectas, right. um, which we will get to in a minute. But let's do talk about um, Redbeard, which was made in 1965, and um, honestly, I had never seen it until last week. Wow. I don't know how I missed it. I don't know what I thought it was, but what I didn't think it was, and what I was absolutely <laughs> thrilled to discover that it was, um, was a kind of a kind of samurai medical movie right <laughs> in a weird right. way right it's set in the 19th century so it's it's set um uh it's and it's it's set after after the fall of the shogunate i think yeah right it's it's the late late 19th century. we're early meiji dynasty here right this is right at the uh, yeah. beginning of the westernization of uh japan or at least the openness to western ideas in japan because uh, Japan was coming out of a period of, of isolation, you know, centuries of isolation, and then was sort of forced uh, to come back into the, the rest of the world um, in, in 1868, I think it was, um, by, by none other than the Americans, once again. Right, of course. So here's a story about a clinic where Mifune plays... Uh, sort of the, the, the wisest of the doctors at the clinic and the young doctors who are coming there to serve. Again, I couldn't help but think of David Lean in, in just this um, scale of it, where again, even though it's a movie that's going to be about, you know, medical problems and it's very episodic in a way with multiple cases and multiple characters, and yet, especially through his use of flashback in this film, there are some scenes of extraordinary sweep and scale and devastation. And we, got, we had a volcano in one movie. We've got an earthquake and the and the aftermath of an earthquake right. in this one. And yet, it's such an amazing humanist movie. I mean, he really does pivot back and forth between a kind of cynical existential film throughout his work, and then also these films that are filled with humanity 
And I, I don't even think they're that sentimental. I mean, he's not as sentimental as John Ford, I don't think. I don't think he is a. I don't think he's a fully committed sentimentalist, but he has he has a bent towards sentimentality sometimes. I think here is where he. I think after making some of these more cynical films for a few years, um, I think he really wanted to just feel the human spirit a little bit. I think he wanted to celebrate the human spirit a little bit with this movie, because while there's there's uh, terrible characters, horrible things that happen, obviously medicine as a subject is. Um, can be a devastating subject. Things that, that the doctors have to deal with and so on isn't always pleasant. But I think he really wanted to celebrate the human spirit. He wanted to celebrate the fact that people can change, that people can desire to do the right thing. And a lot of this stuff, you mentioned John Ford or David Lean. I feel Spielberg. I feel like this is a movie Spielberg might have made, you know, uh, where there's this like committed, earnest, uh, humanistic bent to it. The score very much just immediately right as the movie starts, the score kind of sets that tone. It's big sweeping strings, and it's a, the most. I think it is a sentimental score. I think there is a lot of sentimentality to the score, and you haven't gotten that in a long time with him in a Kurosawa film. There's been those jazzier, weirder, like off-key kind of scores for movies. So this one feels like he's coming right. He's coming back to something he's been working towards his entire career. I think it's a fantastic film. I think this is an amazing film, really underappreciated. And sometimes I think the the reading of it as being overly sentiment, uh, sentimental kind of hurts it in the in the critical community. But I think that's unfair. It's also the last time that Kurosawa would work with Mifune, and also the last time that he would work in black and white. So in that's a right. way, it's a landmark movie in in both of those areas. And it's fitting as the story. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, the story is about a young doctor learning from the master and sort of the master passing the torch in, in sort of a in, in a sort of way. So it's pretty fitting, you know, that Mifune's character is kind of passing the torch to this younger actor. They had, a, I guess, they had had a kind of a falling out. I think that they'd had some rough times with each other prior. They're both hard drinking uh, alphas, you know. <laughs> I'm sure they had a hard time with each other before, but I think this was it. This was movie number sixteen, I believe, between the two of them. And uh, it was time to move on. Both of them went on to have, you know, their own careers. Kurosawa struggled a little bit more than Mifune, I think, after this. But, uh, but it, I think it's a fitting way to go out. We get this. We get Mifune for the first time playing the wise old man, you know. And I think he does it so well. He does everything so well. I think there's also a really surprising uh, moment halfway through the film where uh, he reveals uh, something about himself physically. Uh, in a really wonderful, exciting, <laughs> thrilling scene that is completely unexpected for me. Um, but I think I feel like if it hadn't been there, I wouldn't have felt like I'd really seen a Toshiro Mifune film. So um, I'll, I'll leave that wonderful moment uh, sure. as a surprise to those who haven't seen this right. movie. The rest of you know what I'm talking about. Right. So, so some of the samurai spirit reveals itself. Any other thoughts about Redbeard? Redbeard it's a tough one because, like... Mitch, if you haven't seen Redbeard, hadn't seen Redbeard till last week, I'm betting a lot of our listeners maybe haven't seen it either. I, I, I encourage you all, you know, if you have the Criterion channel, watch Redbeard. Uh, I won't say much more about it. We could have more discussion about it if people want to on our Facebook page maybe. But um, for now, that's all I really have. Well, then we're going to move on to another film. Where are we going, forward or backward? We're going backward to high and low.
So, so High and Low comes out 1963. So it follows uh, Sanjuro. Correct. And High and Low is another contemporary crime film. I, I mean, I think we can call it. A, it's certainly, it's if it, it's a drama with a a criminal engine underneath sure. it at the very least. Yeah. And Mafune plays a, a, a businessman who uh, longs to have more control over the company that he works for. He's a, he's a, sh- they, 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 they make shoes. He um, is very proud of his work and he's very proud of the kind of shoes that they produce. Some of his coworkers aren't as crazy about his uh, particularities in terms of how uh, the quality they want to make stuff faster and cheaper. Mm. Uh, and he manages to extend himself financially, uh, get a loan to be able to buy up enough of the company to take it over. And he's on the very verge of making that move. He's financially stretched, and he gets the call that his son has been kidnapped. Right. And that's bad enough. I mean, that's that's pretty terrible. And if he's going to have to pay this $30 million ransom, it's going to be financially devastating and what seems to be you know the choice do you choose your kid or do you choose your fortune and we all know what that choice was probably going to be if we're decent people has a really brilliant kink thrown into it when we discover that it is in fact the son of his chauffeur who's been mistakenly kidnapped and not his own son right so now he's put in this position of what to do like i think that you know he doesn't have the family tie anymore to sort of drop back on and say, well, I will spend this money to save my own kid. It's something far more complicated. And for me, when that twist happens, and it's just in the, you know, it's in the setup of the movie, it's in the first 20 minutes of the picture, (laughs) the entire possibility, potential of the movie just opens up, blooms for me. And it's just kind of like, oh, what a brilliant situation to, you know, within the engine of a kidnapping plot to have this kind of moral conundrum thrust upon right to Mafuni is just brilliant which is the yeah, i mean obviously this moral conundrum is the heart of the film um at least in the first half and it creates it opens up something about his character as well as we start to learn we, we think of him as a cutthroat businessman at first maybe a bit of a traditionalist but obviously he's he's going all in for this takeover which we think of as a pretty a shark move right but as as we learn that he he has this moral quandary about, well, does he save, does he throw away his career for the chauffeur's son? Obviously that's a tough decision. And I feel for him a little bit. I mean, obviously to me, you know, the audience member, we're typically going to go, come on, dude, you can't let a kid die. <laughs> right. But, uh, as it's going along, we, we start to learn that he's not just a businessman. He was the lowest of the low at the factory. He worked his way up to this position. This is the culmination of a long, hard career, not, you get the idea that the other businessmen, which he's arguing with, the ones that want to make the shoes so fast, they're they're probably gold, silver spoon kids, right? That's what I, at least what I always consider when I'm watching it. But you learn, even when there there comes points in the uh, where they need to rig a suitcase, he's the one that chooses to do it, and he still has his tools, shoemaking tools, in order to take the suitcase apart and do that. And you realize this isn't just a this isn't just a rich man. This is a guy who made his fortune. This is a guy that put the work in. And you start to believe, when you realize that, you start to believe that maybe he's going to make the right decision here, but he's going to make the smart decision, too. He's going to make sure it works out the way, um, hopefully, it can work out so everyone wins in the end. But to me, that's one of the more interesting things about this movie, is it's not just a rich versus poor. 
there's nuance to these characters. Maybe less so in the low side, but the high side, Mifune's character, of course, is is much richer than, say, Mel Gibson's character in, in the movie Ransom, which was a remake of this film, right? I mean, it was pretty much a direct remake, correct? Uh, I, I think it, I don't remember whether it was, I don't yeah. remember. I remember seeing it, and I know there were connections that they were saying about High and Low, but I don't know how direct a remake it was. I, th- I think that the difference was, wasn't the kid actually his kid? They, they didn't throw that wrinkle in. <laughs> yeah, then that would not make it a remake, would it? Well, everything about it. <laughs> I mean, that's it the most brilliant pers- thing about the movie sure. is that. Well, think about the, the that's the Americanization. I could be wrong about Ransom. I'm just kind of remembering that movie, actually. But I think the wrinkle was that he says, no, I'm not paying the money. Just flat out, nope, not doing it, not giving in to this. We're going to figure, we're going to find you guys, like on national TV or whatever. Everybody go out and find these guys. Very American, you know, like. I, I just remember <laughs> hating that movie. Yeah, but I terrible. do know that David David Mamet wrote a remake of um, High and Low, an official remake of it. Oh, yeah? And do you know about that? No, not at all. I have that script. I'll have to give it to you. Of course, you know, all the all the description is written in capital letters, like how Mamet writes. Oh, right. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get it to you and you can take a look at it. One of the things, too, about this movie is is how modern the design is, like the set that it that a lot of the first half of it takes place in, you know, is this amazing modernist apartment. Again, horizontal lines feels like North by Northwest or something, you know, that kind of that kind of design or the Antonioni movies, you know. And so there's a real interesting modernity about the film, too, that seems to be, you know, again, Kurosawa making a statement about wealth and you know the guy who's literally reached the top. He's in this penthouse at the very top of this of this building. So we have this one room set for a good chunk of the film. Of course, you want to broaden that. You want to make it cinematically as rich as you can. And then you have these big, massive windows that look out over the city. It's this incredible view that you know not only gives you gives us something visual, you know, some something to grasp onto visually, but um, gives us the idea of what that low perspective is going to be when we flip the movie in the second half and go down. We, we see, well, the, from the view of that house, that just looks like, I mean, it might as well be models of buildings, you know. What's going on down there? Who knows? But when we go to the low perspective, when we start following the kidnapper around and we see what's really going on down below, we could see why he might look at, up at that house and, and build a grudge. I mean, it's... And the way he goes about it, of course, is not very sympathetic, but you can kind of see his point of view in a certain way. I think it's, what do you think? Do you think this movie is fair, balanced at all? I mean, is it a little, some people criticize that it's maybe a little too overtly villainizing of the of the kidnapper in that he's a crazy drug addict and, and all that. But what do, what do you think? Do you, do you find it pretty yeah, well balanced? Uh, that's, I mean, it's a pretty pulpy choice, I, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of agree. Uh, I think it comes together in the last scene, honestly. I think where it's, it, I don't know, you could criticize the last scene if you want. Maybe it's too overt, you know, too on the nose. But to me, that's where it kind of comes together, where you can, I don't know, you can see that he's saying this separation is not easy. This separation of class is not easy. And it's not and something yet, that you can get, get together and talk it out and say, why do you hate me? And ever understand. Well, I think there's also just a real, uh, heartfelt contempt for the idea of kidnapping. I mean, it is such a, sure. it's such a low crime. You know, it's so it's 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 just so predatory and ugly. Uh, and it's interesting if you think about like the history of Japan. It used to be that you know one of the ways that the shogun would keep order 
is he would um, basically kidnap the family of the of the of his underlings of his you know of the, right. the equivalents of barons or whatever and and those family members would be kept at the castle so as to have leverage over the followers over the people that were he's that the shogun has in in charge underneath him and so like if you think about that you know there's a there's a pretty ugly tradition of kidnapping in Japan, you know, and 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 I think at the time this was made, did you did you say that there were a lot of kidnappings going on? That that was the sort of that was the kind of crime that was happening the right. way it was in in Mexico City a few years back. Somewhat, yeah. It was a, there was a rash of kidnappings, and I think due to that tradition you're talking about, at least in part, the law had not caught up uh, with kidnapping as a crime. It was actually you get it a little bit in this film where um, kidnapping itself just doesn't really hold that big of a sentence. Like, even if you're proven to have kidnapped a child and convicted, you're only going to get, what do they say, 15 years in this movie, I think. And uh, you might get out earlier, where they have to go to great lengths to make sure this guy goes away or gets the death penalty in this particular case. And that was one of the things Kurosawa had in mind when he made the movie was he was aghast at this, like, legal sort of loophole. Uh, not necessarily a loophole, but the weak law uh, considering kidnapping. It was much too easy to do. The, the risk wasn't that high. So um, after this, that, that did change. I don't know if it's directly due to the film, but it was certainly something he was trying to say with this film and one of the reasons why he made a film about kidnapping. Well, let's move on to one more movie. One more. So this is going to fill, those of you keeping track chronologically, this is going to fill out the chronology, and then we're going to talk about the quadfecta itself. But... So let's talk about Sanjuro from 1962, which was a sequel to Yojimbo. Tell me about, a little, talk a little bit about how it came about. Obviously, Yojimbo made a lot of money, uh, although, honestly, Kurosawa made more money from the lawsuit suing Leone for right. ripping him off for a fistful of dollars. He says he made more money from that lawsuit than any of his movies made. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that was, that's always, that's the legend. Print the legend. That's the story, is that he sued the producers of Fistful of Dollars and, and made some real money. Right. Well, Yojimbo was a big box office hit for Toho and for Kurosawa. And Toho immediately kind of went to Kurosawa's door and said, let's let's capitalize on this right now as soon as you can. Let's make a sequel. Now, he'd only made one sequel before, uh, which was a sequel to his first film, Sanshiro Sagata Part 2, which he disowned completely. I've never seen it. Um, that was the only time he was sort of forcing his young younger age with no power to make a sequel. In this case, I guess he was interested in making the sequel. And... Um, used a previous script that he already had in place. He had adapted a novel um, by Yamamoto Shigura called Peaceful Every Day, and it's basically about a group of young samurai who are shepherded by two older samurai and helped through this plot, uh, helped you know to make the right decisions. So instead, he just dropped the two samurai, made it be our old friend Sanjuro, and... Um, went from there. So that's how they were able to put it into production so fast. They already had a script in place. Um, so that was that. And boy, it was another hit 
for him. It was a, This one's even more of a crowd pleaser, I think, than Yojimbo in a way. It's not quite as dark, a little bit more directly humorous, um, where Yojimbo's definitely getting at some deeper themes, I think, than this one. But this this movie's a blast. I think it's really interesting that it's it was not an intentional sequel, and then it was just turned into one. The way that Die Hard Two right. was was also a, a wasn't a John McClane script at all, and then somebody read it and said, "Oh my gosh, this could be Die Hard 2. I wonder if there's a a list of movies to be made of of sequels that you know were unintentional. They were I, borrowed. To, they grabbed another script, changed the main character, and suddenly it was a sequel. I understand that the only Die Hard movies made off of original scripts or the first one and the last one. Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance was also another script. And oh, I think funny. that the one after that, that, which I, I forget their names after the third one. But yeah, that I think that that last one might have been Live Free or Die Hard or something was the first one that was ever, somebody sat down to write a John McClane script from, from a blank page um, since they were to one, which was an adaptation of a book. So that would have been the first time, I guess. But yeah, that, no, it's interesting. Sometimes it's sometimes it's a good idea. I mean, you look at a you look at a script that might not ever get made otherwise, and you just put a, hey, we'll just stick this established character in there, and and we'll make it something. And that's what Kurosawa did here with Sanjuro. It certainly feels like a legitimate sequel. Uh, it's got, you know, it has a couple of characters who are in a power struggle. Um, both of them, in this case, one's kind of good and one's kind of bad. So it's not they're not equally horrible like in Yojimbo right. uh, but it feels it feels very much a part of the other movie yeah it's lighter um, it's not as as cynical uh, it has uh, female characters um, that are more integral to the story yeah uh, and it's for me you know there's like always two images that I carry with me from Sanjuro the the, the first one is the is the spectacular uh, end to the duel uh, right. at the end of the picture, which is sort of famous. And I remember seeing that on a movie screen, not expecting it and being st- stunned by it. But, you know, then the, but the other image are those, are those flowers floating in the water. Okay. And it's so romantic, you know, and it's just such a, it's a beautiful, like, you know, I, I think you think of a severed hand in the mouth of a dog for Yojimbo. And I think of the flowers floating down the water in Sanjuro. One of the images I always think about, and Sandra, I was kind of hoping you would say this too, and, and it's going back to, again, Kurosawa's love of the white edit, is when the old woman can't get over the can't get over the wall, so he's got to get on all fours and be a step stool for her. And she steps up on his back, and then Kurosawa cuts to this close-up of Mifune's amazing face yeah. as he cringes <laughs> when she steps on him, and then he wipes. I always love that moment. That's a great. Yeah, that's pretty great. There's so, this movie is legitimately hilarious. There's so many. The prisoner is a constant <laughs> source of humor. He just keeps popping out and giving them information, and then that point where he comes out and celebrates with them uh, as he's really become totally a part of the team even though they just won't quite let him be part of the team <laughs> you know all that stuff is so funny but it really is a crowd pleaser too to, to see it with an audience like Yojimbo they're both they're both just really a lot of fun yeah now this is the only time uh, we haven't talked about cinematographers much yet but this is the only time he ever worked with the cinematographer, cinematographer Fukuzo Koizumi um, and I think it's interesting do you find don't you find that this movie does have a different look to it than a lot of the others, specifically Yojimbo, I guess you could go as a more direct reference, but some of the other Kurosawa films, it does have a distinct look, don't you find? 
Yeah, uh, and it's for a couple of reasons. One, I think, is the fact that so much of it takes place at night. Right. Um, and it's in a kind of domestic environment. So I think all of that makes it feel different to me. It makes it feel like, um, I think the lenses too, I don't think he's quite as enamored with the long lenses as he was in Yojimbo. And right. part of that is long lenses, harsh sunlight, those dust and wind, where this is just a more pastoral kind of movie. You know, it's it's these houses are in, in a forest and there are these big old trees. And so it's a very... It's a very different tone, which I love. I love I love it, love it, love it when you have a sequel that feels like a perfect sequel and yet has a different kind of palette, tone, yeah. texture. And that's one of the, I, I think definitely Yojimbo and Sanjiro are, are sort of up there on that list of great movies with sequels. The way that Alien and Aliens yeah. you know, does, does that as well, I think. You know, different textures, different tones, but yet... You know, they feel part of the same world. Right. I find that the, the daylight scenes in this film are less contrasty, too. There's something oh, yeah, a little... yeah, they're way softer. They're, they're way softer. I think it's yeah. it, it's very appropriate because it's a softer... I think it's a softer film. We're totally in, softer. Where in Yojimbo is this, this harsh contrast, this gritty movie about evil and excess and someone trying to play, you know, two ends against each other. In a treacherous sort of way, as a as the protagonist of the movie, this movie is about um, a guy who's learned a little something, a guy who's willing to help him out. I mean, he doesn't have to do any of this stuff at first. He kind of gets himself caught up in it, but as he's walking away, he could have just walked away. Even though I think the Yojimbo version of this character would have just walked away and wouldn't have thought, "Wait, your plan isn't going to work. What if you did this?" I think he just walks away. I think we get a guy who's learned a little something. We've seen him in this other movie sort of find himself, do something for someone else, rescue a friend, and so forth. Um, so I think that the softer palette of the movie, um, if that's the right word to use with the black and white movie, is is appropriate. So we've talked about six movies now. Six. So which are your four, John? This is tough. Uh, we talked about this. I think I've, I've kind of gone back and forth on this a little bit. But I think the, I think the tidiest quadfecta here for me is to bookend, I guess, like, the, the two of my three favorite Kurosawa films, Yojimbo and Sinjiro. I'm going to bookend those with my two favorite contemporary uh, Kurosawa films. So I'm going The Bad Sleep Well, Yojimbo, Sinjiro, and High and Low. That's my quad fact. I think, I think it's unimpeachable, personally. I don't think you can go wrong with that one. Um, boy, it's tough to leave Redbeard. I almost scooted that way. I almost left The Bad Sleep Well out. But to me... At the end of the day, I'm more likely to watch The Bad Sleep Well than I am to watch Redbeard. You know, not just because of the length, but because it's just a little bit more humorous, a little bit more enjoyable. Um, yeah. yeah, more richness yeah. of character maybe where Redbeard is an amazing film, but maybe just not as entertaining in a way. So I might just go be kind of nudging it over just simply on entertainment factor. So I think I would probably go Hidden Fortress, Bad Sleep Well, Yojimbo, and Sanjuro. I mean, that's a really I, good one. I think those would be the four. But you know, there's you could you could do one where you end with Redbeard as well. Oh yeah, no, I almost you did. could go. Yeah, I mean, if you so, if you think so I live is, in fear, uh, if you want to go backwards, <laughs> I, I live in fears, and I saw it at the Metrograph in New York, so I've seen that one on the big screen. I've seen it a few times, and it is an amazing film. It's just not quite up there with Throne of Blood, Seven Samurai. And Akiru, but boy, that's a close one right there, too. I mean, and that almost, if you take the lower depths out of that, that's almost uh, uh, 10 films in a row, you know? So, 
It's amazing. You see why he's it's my really... favorite director? I mean, look at this guy. I know. Incredible I body totally, work. I totally get it. And I would um, encourage listeners on the Facebook page to weigh in with uh, what they think is the is the quadfecta. I think it's great to doesn't happen often where you can where you can actually end a film uh, or end of end one of our episodes with several combinations of four films that could be a quadfecta. That's super super rare. Now I do want to do one last thing, Mitch, and that is you know we've talked about the auteur theory. Um, and how it relates to our idea of the quadfecta, where we're kind of subscribing to the auteur theory just by having this show. But at the same time, we want to break it down and kind of talk about the fact that it doesn't really hold water. So I, wanted, I want to make a point. We, one guy that we never mentioned, because he didn't happen to be a key actor in these particular films, but is only second to, I mean, he was actually in more Kurosawa films than Mifune, but second importance to Mifune is, is Takashi Shimura. I want to point out that that guy really was a was just like one of the foundational uh, figures in Kurosawa's career. I also wanted to point out Yoshiro Muraki, who was pretty much his only production designer throughout his career as well. We don't want to leave out some of these other players. And then uh, um, Asakazu Nakai, who only was a cinematographer on two of the films that we were talking about today, but also was the figure, uh, the key figure in him, Kurosawa finally giving in and moving to color. And was his face? It was his number one cinematographer for years, and I would guess that it was probably Kurosawa's uh, mentor as far as uh, cinematography is concerned. So, obviously, plays a huge role in the career of a guy with such an amazing visual eye. I don't want to leave yeah, out I those people. The, well, no, I think you're right. I think the the true key to the auteur theory, if it's ever going to work or make any sense, is that it's as much about the team that the auteur, you know, puts together. Sure. And the fact that they work together again and again and again, whether it's Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann and and production designers, uh, you know, like Henry Bumstead or Bob Burks, who, you know, was part of that team. And that's certainly the case here. Yeah. He's got certain people he works with again and again, and and they help get his vision onto the screen. And the, with that said, we'll say that his nickname was the Emperor because he was a dictatorial director so he was the boss there's no doubt about it and he was a true auteur but i didn't want to leave out those i mean if to leave out the production designer on pretty much all of his films would be kind of a crime because that's the part that we maybe didn't discuss enough uh, today but there's a huge part of kurosawa think about think about that temple at the beginning of rosh try to think about rashman without that temple you know the rain-soaked temple where they're telling the story from um he was obviously an amazing amazing production designer so i wanted to give shout out to some other people that were um, inter- you know, important to his career alright well with that I think we'll wrap up this edition of the Quadfecta thank you so much for uh, joining us here on Patreon and, and supporting what we're up to uh, hopefully we've got we've got lots of new stuff coming so um, everybody stay safe and, and we'll, we'll see you next time alright bye thank you